So if you know anybody, please mention that. Um, okay. Bertrand Russell. <laughs> I still can't believe this many people. Bertrand Russell never lectured this many people. Uh, no, that's not true, actually. Um, the key point to remember with Russell, he was born in 1871. I have that in your flyer? 72. 72? 72. 72. <laughs> in the 1870s. In the 1870s. He was born in the 1870s. 1872 then. Um, at the height of Victorian England, he wasn't one generation removed from us or two generations removed from us. He was he's two world wars, the Vietnam War, um, and the coming of the modern era removed from us. His childhood experience was not one of the 1870s or 1890s or 1900s. It was of the early 1800s to the late 1790s. His parents died when he was quite young. Um, and so he was raised by his grandparents. Now his grandparents were conservative by the standards of their own generation. <laughs> so we'll see this again with Heidegger. Heidegger was raised in the 17th century. Russell was a little bit better than that. Uh, but he really, his upbringing was very peculiar, even for his time. On one hand, he was a privileged class. He, he was born to a, a, a family of minor nobles in England, which is, is, if you're going to be born in England in the 1870s, that's the way to fly. Uh, but he was very strange upbringing by grandparents. That, these are the grandparents of the Victorian era that they seem like a caricature. One, you could not mention sex. Sex did not exist as a subject. There will be no personal contact with your children. That's bad. Uh, children need to be scolded. You never show emotion. I mean, all of the sort of generalities that we have about the Victorian era, all of the wrong concepts, the oversimplifications, no, that was them. They were, whatever you think of the Victorian era, this was a highly religious, extraordinarily rule-bound, very cold. Showing emotion was showing weakness. You never show weakness, and therefore you never show emotion. <laughs> and so Russell um, grew up sort of uh, highly isolated, not just from other people, although that was partially true because they were uh, raised primarily on an estate and primarily with private tutors, but also from his own period. He, they were not allowed really to know what was going on in the world because that might damage their thinking. Um, and so as Russell grew up, he became a young man, and as all young men are, he, he's, as young people, generally he became interested in things like other people, ideas, sexuality, None of this was available to him. And then one day, this remarkably bright boy who's been sealed off from the world was given by his older brother a copy of Euclid's theorems. <coughs> and this has happened repeatedly throughout history. There is a certain subset of our population, when they read Euclid's theorems for the first time, they find it a revelation of religious strength. Here they think is reasoning of the, and it is, it's extraordinarily clear, cogent reasoning that has very powerful impact on the mind. If your mind is built a certain way, it doesn't happen to everybody, but to certain people. There's one chair up here. Um, and when he receives this, again, it is like a vision. He, does, he cannot release his sexual energy. He can't even talk about it. He can't even think that he's sexually frustrated because that wasn't even a possible thought. 
He can't think, I'm socially isolated, I want to share my ideas and feelings with other people, because that's not, you don't do that, you don't show emotions. And so his outlet became uh, these theorems. And this began his love, deep, powerful love, with both mathematics, but with more importantly, with rationalism. With the notion that clear, cogent reasoning can set you free. It was a new world that, that he could move out of this terrible, repressive, um, limiting shell into this pure realm where there are no frustrations, where the rules work, where you can explore limitless horizons. And it, it just thrilled him to no end. Changed his life entirely. And he said, that, more or less, is what I want to do. And so all of the material that we talk about tonight you want to keep this in mind. Because then what happens is he enters this realm of pure reasoning. Euclid is just an example. As we go through his works, there'll be more examples. And he finds great, on one hand, release and freedom there. But on the other hand, it still isn't emotional, social, or intellectual contact with other people. And so he'll pursue, pursue projects that are pure reasoning, Principle of Mathematica, the principles of mathematics being the most important ones. Um, until he meets a woman, generally. Falls in love. And all of a sudden, well, forget all that crap. <laughs> I don't want to do that anymore. And then he writes a work like Logic and Mysticism. <laughs> right? Which is just, you know, because all of a sudden he says, oh, this pure logic, there's got to be more. Well, then that all falls apart, and he shuts down again and, and, and takes himself back into the realm of pure philosophy, which for him was pure reason to try and recover, to recoup himself, to, to distance himself from the world. Then he becomes frustrated again. And so there's this constant pendulum swinging. He never works this out, by the way. But this is, he just goes back and forth. It's a terrifying life to read about in that sense, because you see the repeated encounters with these frustrations. Um, so that, that, but keep that in mind that his entire life he lived until 1970 what did I say there, whatever I said there that's when he lived, uh, 1970 so he lives through you know, the emancipation of women, the sexual revolution but he was born in Victorian England and raised in damn near Edwardian England um, and he never he could never quite reconcile that it never was him so he was at war with his times emotionally so intellectually, very innovative. Emotionally and personally, spiritually, troubled. Very troubled. And we'll talk about what happens here. Um, because he was so interested in the project of reason, he pursued the field of epistemology. Uh, you, you can debate, people say we did analytical work and logical work. Basically, his prime focus was epistemology, which is the question of what do we know and how do we know it? So to give you an outline of this, because it'll come up repeatedly, I want to start with the question. Um, if you know the answer, feel free to shout out. Um, is there a rhinoceros in this room? <laughs> there is not a rhinoceros in this room. Ah, yes. See, epistemologists never work that out. And here's why. It seems like... This is an actual example from an argument, by the way, that Russell had with Ludwig Wittgenstein. And Wittgenstein, well, I'm not going to accept that. 
I refuse to accept there is not a rhinoceros in this room. <laughs> and, and it turns out that Wittgenstein's probably right. That's just scary. Um, here's the problem. It seems like the simplest proposition in the world. There's not a rhinoceros in this room. Patently obvious. How do we know that? Our, our sense impressions. We look around. We don't see a rhinoceros. And so we say, well, there's not a rhinoceros in this room. Ah, just a few teeny tiny problems with that. One, what is a rhinoceros? <laughs> Notice we're positing an absence. We do not have a sense impression of an absence. So when we say there's not a rhinoceros in the room, what we're really saying is, I have a memory or an idea. In fact, I don't believe I've ever seen a rhinoceros. I had to ponder this. <laughs> but nonetheless, I have an idea that I think I know what a rhinoceros is. And I compare the room that I sense with a room that I imagine would be like if there were, in fact, a rhinoceros in it. And I say, the room I am in is not like my imaginary room. Therefore, there is no rhinoceros here. Now, the problem with that is, as I said, is that's not a sense data. We're not experiencing a lack of a rhinoceros. <laughs> what we're experiencing is a disconnect between what we imagine the room would be like and what the room is actually like according to our sense data. And epistemologists go, well, that's funny. So the world is made up of our memories and imaginations. And that's what reality is. Ooh. <laughs> See how that gets really muddy really fast? And haven't we all imagined, for instance, that a date is going very well? Only to discover that perhaps our imaginations have been somewhat incorrect, misleading, less than totally accurate. Right? And so epistemologists struggle with this. It seems, I mean, it seems so that there's not a goddamn rhinoceros in the room. And yet, how do you know this for sure? Because we think the room would be different if there were. And so they go, okay, well, how can we fix this, right? Because it seems like there's not one. We must be able to demonstrate that. Again, also assume, how many people have ever actually physically in person seen a rhinoceros? Because I don't know if... I have. That's most people. Okay. Zeus. That's good. But, but notice, how many people have been to Paris? Wow, that's a lot of people. But notice if I said if Paris is not in the room, half of us would never have seen the object which I say is not in here. And so we wouldn't even be using a memory of the object that we had experienced to make the clarification about its presence or absence. We would be using an idea that we got from God knows where to come up with an imaginary image of the room that we would then compare to our sense data and say, well, Paris is not in the room. That's not a real firm basis <coughs> to build things on. If you try and build reality from sense data, then what you're doing is called empiricism. Basically, you, you collect all the sensory data that you can, you build models, and those models are reality. This makes you an empiricist. Originally, Bertrand Russell was not an empiricist. 
He is what we call an idealist, a platonic idealist. This is because of Euclid. What platonic idealists is say, no, 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 no. There is in the universe perfect forms. There's a perfect rhinoceros. There's a perfect room. There's perfect things. And what we do is unknowingly built into our minds, often called a priori, are these models. And so we're not appealing to sense data, although in part we are. Mostly we're appearing to, appealing to the structure of the universe to arrive at some idea of what we mean by things like room and rhinoceros and in and out. Bertrand Russell's first project uh, in epistemology was his work called Principles of Mathematics. I think I gave you there an example. And if, if it's on the first, uh, first page. It says, pure mathematics is a class of all propositions of the form uh, P implies Q. Wow, that's exciting. <laughs> Are you all excited? Have you glanced ahead for Principia Mathematica? Because that is really some clarifying material there. Uh, here's what he does. He goes, look, and this, by the way, goes back to Kant. Everything goes back to Kant. I mentioned that in the first lecture. Here we are again. Kant had demonstrated that we shouldn't trust things like our idea of rhinoceros or whether or not it's in the room. That, that we only have the capacity to build the model as if, remember I mentioned this, as if it were true. With one exception. He said mathematics. <coughs> mathematics seems so necessarily, obviously true that it must be a priori true. True before everything. Before the universe is founding, mathematics works. In every alternative universe imaginable, mathematics works. So, like Euclid's geometry, here seemed to be a realm where we can build truth. If, if we can understand mathematics, then we will have absolute, total truth. From that, we can derive any other truth that can possibly be developed. This was Russell's goal in the principle of mathematics. So first step is, he said, look, um, there is a realm of perfect truth. And it, again, it's in mathematics. But it turns out that mathematicians don't know why mathematics works. It's one of the little tricks they don't tell you about mathematics. One plus one equals two. We all know that. We don't know why. It took Russell and Alfred North Whitehead about 12 pages of Principia Mathematica to demonstrate that proposition, which they, they, they claim hilariously is the occasionally useful proposition that one plus one equals two. Uh, that, 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 but it took a lot of work to demonstrate that. And when Russell begins working, whole sections of mathematics had no logical foundations. And so he said this. He said, math is up here. Below math, sort of more important to math, is some logical propositions. And if we understand the rules of forming propositions, mathematics is a class of all propositions. P implies Q. If this, then that. If we understand the propositions sufficiently well, then A, we can prove all of mathematics. Nice achievement. And then B, we can use those rules of proposition construction to then work on things like, is there a rhinoceros in the room? 
And so you turn the proposition, is there a rhinoceros in the room, and from that into something like, um, if A, then you would need this if. It would look like this. If A, then B, a proposition. If there is a rhinoceros in the room, then people will be screaming. <laughs> if people are not screaming, then there is no rhinoceros. Are people screaming? Yes or no? If no, then no rhinoceros. If yes, potentially a rhinoceros. <laughs> but notice all the linguistic content drops away. There's no room here. There's no rhinoceros here. There's just A, B, P, and Q. And logical functions, the if, then, or, and, not. You only need two of them, it turns out. You only need not and or. But use a couple of others. It makes the equations easier. And so his first run of this was propositional analysis of mathematics. Great. And they made huge strides. It, it, you cannot understand, it's hard for us to understand the impact that his book had on mathematical thinkers all over the world. He started receiving letters from, from the leading mathematicians, Cantor, Piano. Um, they, they wanted to write him. They wanted to know, wow, huge achievement. How did you do this? What are you doing? They invited to conferences all over the world immediately. It was this amazing breakthrough. And then he ran into some problems. The problems were the form of um, the paradox of, well, this, this isn't the one he used, but this is an example of the paradox. This sentence is a lie. <laughs> so, with propositions, everything depends on being able to prove something true or false. It's either a true statement or a false. It's either a true proposition or a false proposition. If it's true, then you do this. If it's false, you do this. It's totally mechanical. And then you derive your proofs from that. Ah, this sentence is false, or this sentence is a lie. Well, if it is a lie, then it's true. And if it's not a lie, then it's false. You cannot imagine how much time Bertrand Russell spent doing this. I mean, years, ladies and gentlemen. He was like, ah! He tried every imaginable scheme to solve these kinds of problems. Another version of this is they said, the king of France is bald. Turns out that that is a perfectly good proposition, but there was no king of France. <laughs> so it made sense, but it was counterfactual, but it was a good proposition, and so this propositional logic started to crumble on him. It's like, ah, it's all falling apart. And he knew it. And so on one hand, he's getting accolades all over the world from, from you know, just the most important mathematical thinkers in philosophy and in logic and in math. He's going to conferences in Paris. A lot of positive feedback at the same time that he knows from talking to those same people that he's in trouble, that this project is falling apart. Um, at this point also, he gets married, which you would think would be a nice thing. Um, unfortunately for Russell, it was not. Uh, one, one person described his wife, Alice, as aggressively dull. 
Yeah. Which is not, which is sort of unkind, but apparently quite accurate. That she wanted to spend a lot of time with Russell, she wanted his affection, but she was dull and boring and really didn't want to talk to him at all. And, and for someone of Russell's intellect, this proved sort of painful, and from painful for her, too. It was painful on both accounts. So, so their marriage was strained in the beginning, and then it just became worse and worse and worse. And so this drove Russell um, into, again, the logic even more deeply. And he thought, you know what? I'm going to come up with a new way of solving this. And what he came up with was called the theory of classes. So forget propositions. We're going to go into the theory of classes. Um, by the way, just as a side note, this little theory of propositions, this, this leads to basically all modern computer programming. So it's been just a little bit influential. <laughs> right? So Russell's, but Russell's like, forget that. Right? We don't want to do this anymore. We're done with this. So we'll get rid of it. Right? <laughs> And he said, no, forget propositions. They don't work. They work for computers. They don't work for, for what he wanted to do. He said, well, we'll come up with a theory of classes. And he said, it's not if the rhinoceros screams or whatever. It's now it's you have just sets of things. Set theory is what it's called now. Um, you have a set of a thing called a room. Again, we'll call all rooms A. You have a set of things that are rhinoceroses. Call all rhinoceroses B. And the question is, does the set A include the things B? That all you ever know about anything. Is it a member of the set or it is not a member of the set? They conjoin or they don't conjoin. This turns out to be a huge leap forward. I know this seems very abstract and I'm struggling to make it concrete. But it, 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 it's a, a significant shift because it, it changes from if, then, or else. No, I mean, that's still part of it. But now we're just really about concerned about is something part of one set or is it not part of one set? And this leads to the public the writing of Principa Mathematica, often considered one of the most important works in the history of philosophy, logic, science, and math all at once. Um, and he works on this with Alfred North Whitehead. And in the beginning, they're working at a white heat. Unbelievable progress is being made. And then he meets Alfred North Whitehead's wife. <laughs> it turns out that Miss Whitehead is just a wee bit lonely and finds her husband, the logician, Alfred, not all that engaging. Meanwhile, there's Russell, the engaging, friendly and available because totally alienated from his own wife, logician, who has moved into their house to work with her husband on this major work. <laughs> Russell begins to have doubt about the importance of the project. <laughs> ah, other things have suddenly become really important to him, uh, wooing Mrs. Whitehead, chief amongst them. So they strike up an, an unbelievably complicated relationship, and... Russell starts to really be concerned about the true value of this project. So on one hand, he's making huge strides and developing a logic that came very close to achieving their goal, which is providing a perfect mathematical, perfect logical foundation for all of mathematics, which could then be extended to basically the rest of the world. It wouldn't prove everything, but it would do a lot of work. 
hugely important steps were taken by him. Uh, people, if you're into math logic or the foundations of mathematics, this is the book. This is the book. So he's struggling on two fronts. One is huge, I mean, truly titanic. It took him about six years to finish this work. Um, ended up being three volumes. So expensive, so expensive to print that Russell and Whitehead each had to cough up 50 pounds to help cover the costs, which, as he wrote down, meant that he spent six years of labor and 50 pounds, <laughs> right? Uh, but at the end of it, you have this class model, which is, again, hugely important in mathematics today. But notice this little logical problem that arises once again. So before we have this sentence is a lie, this one ends up being the class of all classes, not members of themselves. members of themselves, which are not members of themselves. But yeah, the class, so we have a class of all the classes that are not a member of themselves. So if you have a class that's not a member of itself, then it goes into the class of all those classes. Wasn't Girdle alive then? Ah, yes, he's coming. Girdle just drives a stake right in his heart. <laughs> You're dead. But... Um, the class of all classes, not a member, not members of themselves. Well, if it is a member of this class, and it's a member of the class of itself, and it's not a member of this class, then it's a member of this class, and it's not a member of this class. And, God, I think I'm going to go talk to Alfred North Whitehead's wife some more. This was his, This is how you work that out. It turns out, and so. <laughs> yeah, so he's just struggling. On one hand, to produce, to finish this project, which about halfway through he realized was flawed. And he could not come up with the answer. It turns out there is no answer. This is what Gödel proves. Gödel's famous incompleteness proof, 1936, um, much later than this, but that's how long it took to finally prove that this was undoable, the project that Russell thought he had done. Uh, he shows that there is no system that can operate this way. There's lots of very good systems that can do lots of work. None of them can cover everything. None of them are complete uh, in a mathematical sense. Um, and so already he feels this falling apart on him. He's like, ah. Oh. So on one hand, he's making huge strides in mathematical logic, both by developing propositional logic to a place it had never been, and by developing set theory to a place that's been never been, and by providing logical foundations for whole fields of mathematics that had never been touched before. Most people, and, and all of his admirers, said, you're one of the leading minds in the world. Russell said, see, he didn't want partial solutions. He didn't want a little bit of the truth. He didn't want a corner. He was going for the absolute truth, the platonic ideal. He was an idealist. Something that's three-quarters true, no, who cares? Something that works really good 97% of the time, no philosophical interest for it. If it wasn't perfect, it didn't work for him. Because, again, as I mentioned, he was in this shell. 
He, he was trying to build a world that would allow him to escape from the world that he was raised in. Basically escape from himself to a pure, clean, true world like Euclid's geometry. It really deeply, you can't overestimate the sense that this drove him on. And so he feels this collapsing all around him. Simultaneously, his marriage is collapsing. Um, and he's in love with a woman who's basically unavailable to him, but who loves him very much, and they spend a lot of time together, just making it all emotional hell for all parties, while he works with Alfred North Whitehead on this major work of both of their lives. Um, and he just becomes frustrated and disgusted, and, and he just basically collapses in heat. He called this the bitterest period of his life, the writing of this book. He said it was a monastic existence, which basically it was. Um, so about what time was it? Uh, 1903 to 
But what he says is, more or less, to summarize, part of the world comes to us from mysticism, inspirational part. You can just substitute online for mysticism in the entire book, and it makes perfect sense. I'm not kidding. It's really sort of an interesting love letter to Audelin. But when you think, you must think with logic. And so for the first time, he allows into his thinking the notion that there's a part of the world and a part of the human experience that cannot be explained entirely with logic. And that part is mysticism. Again, just substitute the word online, and you've got it right. That there's, this, there's romance, there's inspiration, there's love, there's beauty, there's aesthetics, and you, a logic doesn't work. Damn. <laughs> if you want to think correctly, you need logic. But it doesn't cover everything. That's not enough anymore for him. It's a great short word. Short, is it hard to find. I think there's an electronic version online. Interesting read in context. And he does another work, which I have here, um, from the analysis of mind. Uh, if you look at that, it's, the book has grown out of an attempt to harmonize two different tendencies, one in psychology and one in physics. It's a long essay, uh, I mean, very long essay. Um, he wrote several books on this subject, but the key note here is he switches to empiricism. He says, all right, I've given up the logical ideal. I've given up the platonic ideal. Gödel hated him for this. Kurt Gödel, the, the math logician, probably the most famous math logician of our century, continuously said, you had the inspiration from God when you were young and you abandoned your duties to logic. And Russell's like, well, not so much. I, I just don't think it solves everything anymore. So he became an empiricist. He said, look, we know the world through our senses. And what we have to do is try and determine the best way to analyze our senses. But knowing our senses are misleading, he shifted his ground dramatically. And he said, look, mathematics is not explained by logic. <coughs> logic is explained by mathematics and the other empirical sciences. All of a sudden he says, Look, the role of philosophy is to explain the discoveries of physics and chemistry and mathematics and bring those into the realm of the philosophical discourse that people who do not have access to those fields can understand. To explain the world in terms of the empirical results of the physical sciences. And again, he wrote several very good books in this mode. But for him personally, this is a dramatic shift of view from the perfect world that we will then derive all our experiences from, from no, no, we need the sciences, and then we take their results and we use those to derive the world. But he admits that the sciences are limited. There's only so much the sciences can know, so there's only so much philosophy can know. And so again, he spends a whole period of his life writing in this mode. Uh, he switches ground for empiricism. No absolute truths in the old sense in which he held that. The job of philosophy is to just translate science for a general public, philosophical public and a broad public. To wit, he writes a book like The ABCs of Relativity. He feels it's his job to do that. But it was really a crushing defeat for him. He decided, you know what, I'm going to abandon philosophy. I'm going to leave Cambridge. I don't want to do that anymore. 
And when he wrote ABCs of Relativity, it turned out to sell many copies. He made a lot of money. And he goes, ooh, <laughs> look at that. I don't want to do this logic stuff anymore. It doesn't work. It's too limiting. I want to be in the world. I want to experience things. And if I write more popular works, I make money. And so if you look on the back of, of, of the flyer here, there's a list of, of what I call readable works. The problems of philosophy, why I'm not a, a Christian, an inquiry into the meaning and truth, a history of Western philosophy. It's at this period, just before World War I, that he begins writing these works. Not all of them, but this style of work. Um, most, if you read about him in philosophy books or bi biographies of him that are philosophical, they say, oh, well, these aren't very important works. These are just, you know, he did, did them for the money or he did them for popular or they're just derivative. No, I, I think, I mean, I argue, absolutely wrong. When he discovered that the logical project was not going to work, he was devastated. And so he shifted grounds. He said, you know, my goal, my job now is to communicate as best I can with people, with, with the general public, the general educated public. And he took these works very seriously. Now, there are some works that he wrote, which I have not listed here, which he did not take seriously. Those come mostly um, in between the wars. He really did just need to make money. He would write anything at that point. But these he took very seriously. He worked very hard on them to try and communicate the best ideas he felt of the past and contemporary philosophy to the general public. And they're, they're all readable, and I, I highly recommend them. The next list I say is almost impossible, Principa Mathematica, the introduction, and Principles of Mathematics, the introduction. The actual content of them would be simply impossible. And to demonstrate that, here's a page from Principa Mathematica. That's the, what it says, 639 with a little diagram. Principle of Mathematica is three volumes just like that. <laughs> Not a page turner. And on the first night, I recommended that you always read philosophers in their original works. With Russell, it's not really a very good idea. Unless you have a big background in mathematical logic, in which case, hey, knock yourself out. Um, but the key issue here is that really, as important as these logical works were to him and to the 20th century mathematics and logic, he felt they were failures. And he shifted to logic and mysticism. His attempts to translate um, modern science into philosophical language, his attempt to bring the greatest thoughts to the broadest population, because he thought the logical project was dead. Um, so he finishes this, and he moves into a new phase in his life. He runs for parliament, which is hilarious. Bertrand. If anybody did not have a feel for the general mind, it was Bertrand Russell. <laughs> and he was always wrong about everything. And that didn't have to do with, with philosophy and, and logic. Um, and he, he pursues uh, several unfortunate relationships until he finally marries again to a woman named Dora. And he thought, here is a forward-looking, intelligent, which he absolutely was, a woman whom I can settle down with and have a family. She was a feminist, a free love advocate, a socialist, if not a communist. 
And settling down was sort of the last thing on her mind. <laughs> and so he starts his second great tortured marriage. And you can see from the first day that this marriage is not going to work. And most of his friends tried to explain this to him, including many of his lovers, and he just wouldn't listen. Right? And so he sets off. Um, and it, it, again, it just does not go well. On one hand, he wanted a family desperately, and he finally got one with her. He had, he had two children with her. And he turns his mind now to education. Do not read Russell's books on education unless you want to laugh. No one knew less about being a parent or about raising children than Bertrand Russell. I mean, it's almost horrifying. And really, it is kind of sad because he damaged his children pretty well trying to carry out his philosophical ideals onto children. And he really did sort of, you know, they did not have happy childhoods because of this. Um, but again, it returns to his idea. How do you raise children? He put this logical framework on it, but it was really the way his grandparents had raised him in a weird reproduction of his own childhood. You don't want to show them too much feeling. They know you love them, so if you show them too much love, it makes them nervous. This is one of his arguments. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, so things are not going well for Bertie. So when things aren't going well, what do you do? You, well, yeah, of course, you have an affair. What she is doing, of course, vigorously on all sides, much to his chagrin, even though he's having affairs, of course, as well. Um, he's deciding this whole free marriage thing is not working out too well, and she decides, no, I think it is. <laughs> he's like, oh, damn. That puts me in. And he was enough of a logician to realize that he can never win that argument, right? Um, but so he returns to his love of philosophical reasoning. Um, and, and he launches a second development of empiricist thought. And this one is described best, I think, think of it as the world is, 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 can be conceived of in two ways. In one way, think of it as two buckets. It's either a bucket full of jello in which everything mixes and is undifferentiated. Or it's a bucket of shock, pellets, odds and odds of pellets. And that you take any given pellet, and by describing its relationship to as many other pellets as possible, you arrive at an understanding of the world. This is a world constantly in flux. This is a world of, of changing, but more or less fixed relationships. Um, Russell decides that this is the right answer. He says, we, the world is all differentiated little particles. Not surprisingly, he gets this idea from physics, because now the atomic theory of physics is taking off. And he says, ah, look, there's the proof. The world is made up of little particles and their relationships to each other. And that if we can understand that, then we'd be able to grasp the nature of these relationships again. And so he begins working on a serious attempt to codify all scientific thought into one logical system based on a, I'm sort of simplifying as a shot theory of the universe, the relationships of any given particle to any others. And at this point, he makes a significant breakthrough in, in his understanding and our understanding of the world 
in which he says there's actually six dimensions in the universe. Now we're all used to now thinking of the universe as having 11 or 27. This was extraordinarily important and groundbreaking at the time. He says there's not three dimensions as were known then. He says there's actually six. And he starts developing this model. A few papers published on this, but he did voluminous writing, never published, because he breaks it off, of course, when he starts another affair. But um, he, he made a lot of progress in trying to work out this third version of the universe. Um, this version of the universe, by the way, is, is beginning to triumph at the moment. Uh, modern, modern string theory is failing, and so which was sort of this version of the universe. And so the math of this version, uh, advanced particle physics, um, is beginning to look right. And, and Russell's work on this is becoming more important suddenly after, after a lapse of many, many years, as, as repeatedly happens with him. Um, his work here is also the foundation of what's today called analytical philosophy. It's a technical field, but again, you can see the analysis of the relationship of any part of the universe to any other part of the universe and, and the logical implications that go with it. And so his technical work continues on. Well, until again, another you know, horribly doomed, failed, complicated personal crisis hits him. He starts dating this other woman. His wife has two more kids by another man, even though they're still married. He wants nothing to do with them. Ugly breakup. And he switches again. Um, and how many of you have read anything by Russell? People read things by Russell? Yeah. Um, probably not Principal Mathematica, my guess, just off the top of my head. And he switches back again to do more of his popular work. And, and, and again, this, this question that is raised in the minds of many of the philosophers who write about this. And they say, oh, he broke off this wonderful project to do work for the masses. But it raises an interesting ethical question. Which is his important work? Several people, when I said I was going to do Russell, said reading Russell is one of the most important intellectual events of my life. Major breakthrough, huge insights, emotional change. Well, that's pretty good. Right? That's, a, that's a significant impact. And so the, one of the debates that goes on about Russell is what is he important for? He's certainly important for these technical achievements, but most philosophers sort of to mark him down for spending so much time writing books like oh, um, An Inquiry into the Meaning and the Truth or, or A History of Western Philosophy. Even those, those are the works that have most influenced people. And the hallmark of most of those works, and, and if you've read them, you can, you can certainly, I think, appreciate this, is back to his notion of logic. He says, look, the world is not necessarily logical, and that's what he was freed up by when he, when he moved to empiricism. He could finally accept that the world might not, in fact, make total and complete sense. It might be messy, and it might be incomplete, and it might be unknowable in some ways. Ah, but there is still a lot we can work out. There's still a lot we can think about and figure out if we apply careful reasoning. And so he chose subjects about which very little careful reasoning had generally been done. Famously, he wrote, you know, Why I Am Not a Christian. And he wrote this book. Really, there's not a lot that's new in that essay. That's just simply an essay, one of the essays in the book. But he finally sat down and he said, well, let's look at this with as much concision and reason as we possibly can. And he said, if we extract emotion from it, 
and we extract mythology from it, it doesn't look very reasonable at all. He said, let's do that with marriage. If we extract emotion from it, right, it doesn't look very reasonable at all. Let's do that with education. And it turns out, on one hand, it generates powerful insights. On the other hand, if you extract emotion out of the marriage relationship, it's going to skew things a touch. <laughs> right? And so he struggles with the same thing continuously. He wants to apply logic to everything, and he turns it on to many subjects where there had not been that much careful logical analysis before. Christianity, uh, the marriage relationship, the liberation of women, the education of children. He says these have been ruled by custom. These have been ruled by emotion. These have been ruled by this is the way people have done it for 150 years. This is the way we'll have to do it. And sometimes he's right, and sometimes he's wrong. But his really early breakthrough, surprisingly, but is to just say, let's really look at these. He shares this with Nietzsche. If you remember from Nietzsche, Nietzsche said, you know what? Let's try and look as carefully as we can as what's going around here and think about it as well as we can. The distinction is Nietzsche had no necessary need for logic. He was a very reasonable person. He applied reason a lot. Um, and, he had a, and Nietzsche had a, a very good feel for other human beings. Russell, the, all the evidence suggests he never did. To the point where I, I mentioned earlier that he was dating Odline, his lover, and this woman has come over from the United States to, she thinks, probably marry him, which is, of course, absurd, but that's what she thought. And she is living with Adeline. Don't ask me how that happens. It's very complicated. Um, Adeline is at R Russell's house for drinks and tea and chat and whatnot, perhaps sex. And there's a knock at the door. And Russell doesn't answer. And Adeline says, aren't you going to answer? He says, no, it's that woman from America. She does it every day. She knocks and weeps out there on the steps. <laughs> and Adeline's like, well, shouldn't you talk to her? And he's like, no, I don't want anything to do with her. She's like, ah! She just sort of, sort of ended up realizing, Adeline did, that boy, he's really shut off from people. If you can just sort of sit there and go, oh no, don't worry about it, she'll go away after she cries for a while. <laughs> you know, your, your empathy for your fellow human being is a low ebb. But on the other hand, this was also his power. His capacity to say, you know what, let's just get all that emotional crap out of here. Let's really look at this without being blinded in a way by the human. Nietzsche said, let's look at the human in everything. Human, all too human. That's what I want to talk about. I'm talking about the human. Russell tries the opposite tact. Can we apply human reason well enough to basically get us out of the human? Can we find a spot to stand at from which we can look down on or up on or across at human beings where we don't have any biases, where our own histories, ideas, uh, mental images, emotional feelings do not so totally distort our understanding of the world that we, that, that we can't understand the truth of a situation, of a historical uh, fact of what's going on. And so if you look through, Russell, by the way, his collected works are, I think, 36, 37 volumes. You know, lots. He wrote lots and lots and lots. And he was a very good writer. And so he wrote, he could write with great facility about virtually anything at high speed. 
whether it had any merit or not, it didn't matter. He could do it. Um, which is sort of a, a, a blessing and a curse. But the, one of the consistent things through all of his work is this idea. Can I get outside of the human? Yes. Did Nietzsche say men are made for war and women for the entertainment of the warrior? Um, yes, but that is a misunderstanding of Nietzsche. But he did say that. But we could talk about... You, were you here for the Nietzsche lecture? No. We talked about that very subject. That's but we'll right. follow that up. But, but this is the idea, right? Can we get out of the human perspective? Is that possible? As close as anybody's ever gotten, Russell has done it. Um, how many people struggle with mathematics? People often struggle with mathematics? Yeah. The evidence is, and this is very strong, is that it's not a, a, a natural human way of thinking. That we can do it, it's not what we like to do. It's not how we normally view the world. And so it takes a very special kind of training, which we all accept, we all can do. Um, and so we can start thinking about the world in ways that are sort of they're not inhuman because we can do them, but it's not normally human. What Russell did is try to develop those into an absolute philosophical system for discovering the truth without the interference of human bias. This is, uh, I, I mean, well, that's a great idea, right? I mean, on one hand, wow, the hubris, the amazing desire to do that. On the other hand, spotty in results. Sometimes he was right on. His, his history of Western philosophy, even, even professional philosophers have to admit that, that he's got some good material in there. Principle Mathematica, huge step forward in our understanding of mathematics and the foundation of logic. Principles of mathematics started a whole new field, basically, of mathematical sciences and of reasoning, which is used in everything. Game theory, computers, uh, programming, it's, it's hugely applied. But also, like I say, he got it totally wrong on some other things, like education of children, like the nature of relationships between men and women. Um, he and D.H. Lawrence, Lawrence got in, in endless arguments about this, because uh, Lawrence had his own wacky ideas. Uh, but, but for Lawrence, he said, look, it's love. This is the discovery of another human being to defeat loneliness and create love. And Russell was like, why are you talking about loneliness and love? I'm talking about human relationships. <laughs> And Lawrence just begins pounding his head on the desk. You know, he's like, who is this guy? What do you mean why am I talking about love and loneliness? And Russell's like, look, you have a proposition, man and woman. Lawrence is like, no, no, no. It's not a proposition. Russell's like, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so a very peculiar outlook. So finally, uh, his later works. Um, so if you go to our knowledge of the external world, uh, he, he travels around. He breaks up with his second wife, who long litigation because she has two of his kids. She's had two kids by somebody else. Russell has a noble title now. I think he's an earl. And so who's going to be able to claim the title when Russell passes on? He wants it to be his older son. Um, the money issues are all... Of course, we've had World War I and World War II. I mean, it's just a mess, right? Um, and he returns to this notion of a, a, a search for how do we understand the world. And so this is, this is one of his later works, Our Knowledge of the External World. 
Um, just a quick note from this first sentence to give you a sense of it. Among the objects to the reality of objects of sense, there is one which is derived from apparent difference between matter and, and how they appear in physics and things as they appear in sensation. Men of science, for the most part, are willing to condemn immediate data as merely subjective. And he wants to, in some sense, now defend immediate data. So again, a huge shift here. Platonic ideals. Forget sense data, it's just wrong. To, well, physics access to material reality, physicists, chemists, mathematicians, will use that in an empirical way to construct a model of the universe. Finally, he sort of ends up you know what? I think we can build a model of consciousness. Logically coherent. Everything with Russell is always logically coherent. Uh, but that will allow us to use sense data in the following way. While it may not be perfect, it is the best model of the universe we can ever have. So th this is over the course of his life. This is you know 60 years almost of philosophizing. He ends up making this argument, which is to say, look, we need to take our sense data and organize them as logically as we can. This is not going to produce perfection, but this is going to produce the best approximation of the actual, actual universe that we can ever derive. It's a very limited sort of epistemology. From, I will prove the foundations of all possible knowledge with perfect logical precision, to, you know what, our sense data, a little bit dodgy, but it's the best model we can, we can develop. There is not a rhinoceros in the room. How do we know? You know, it's messy. But it's the best we can do. There is not a rhinoceros in the room. I have some concept of what a rhinoceros is. I can imagine the impact the rhinoceros would have on my life if it were in here. I don't see those things. So I use my sense data and my memories to build a model of the world that looks pretty good. Philosophers do not like this because he abandons the notion of having the absolute realm of truth. And, and modern philosophical discourse is nothing if not dedicated to, particularly Anglo-American, forget the French people, we'll talk about them later, but Anglo-American philosophy <laughs> is dedicated to a pursuit of either empirical perfection, borrowing a model from the sciences, or platonic ideals, borrowing the models from logic, both of which basically Russell laid out and abandoned. But he ends up at almost a Jamesian, and we'll do some William James, almost a Jamesian pragmatism. And he says, well, I don't know, maybe I can't prove absolutely to you that there's not a rhinoceros in the room. But by God, I think there probably isn't. And if we take a poll, we'll all believe there probably isn't. And, and that's what we have to do. An example he gave um, of this proposition, even earlier in his life, was he said, as a young man, he had been quite scared because one of the preachers had, had begun preaching about the, the end of the world is nigh. The, the world is going to be destroyed. It's the second coming, the end of all. And he said he was walking home and he saw that the preacher was planting apple trees in his yard. <laughs> and he said, I felt greatly comforted by that discovery. 
because it seemed inconsistent with the philosophy which he had been preaching. And so he, this is where he ends up. And he says, you know, we're all planting apple trees in our yards, more or less. And that's what we do. Not because it's perfect, not because our knowledge is perfect, not because our logic is perfect, but given the empirical data that we have through our senses, that's the best we can do. Now we have to reason as carefully as we possibly can. But at the end of the day, what we're going to be stuck with is, like I said, there is not a rhinoceros in this room. Bertrand Russell. Like I said again at the beginning, I, I really believe in work.